Well, I think Wilfred Woodruff's message is is as applicable and as urgent today as it was in the 1800s. That was Jennifer Mackley, author of the book Wilfred Woodruff's Witness, which is the story of his role in restoring the ordinances of the Holy Temple. Jennifer is also the co-founder of the Wilfred Woodruff Papers Foundation and the CEO of the Wilfred Woodruff Papers Project. I'm Steve Harper, a historian of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, and I shudder to think what it would be like if Wilfred Woodruff had not lived or recorded daily journal entries for well over half a century. Whether you know a little or a lot about Wilfred Woodruff and the restoration of temple ordinances, you'll want to know more, I'm guessing, and you will know a lot more soon. So stay tuned as I interview Jennifer about her favorite subject. I'd like to know... uh, right at the outset here about your dedication of your book. You dedicated it to Alice Clarkson Turley, and I'm positive there's a story behind that. All started with my mother's interest in Wilfred Woodruff's vision, but also her focus on the women. So most people know uh, the story of Wilfred Woodruff's vision of the founding fathers when he was working in the temple in St. George, but few know of the list that he created included not only a hundred eminent men, but eminent women. And Give us some of their names. I think uh, listeners will be interested to know who who these women are. Well, um, it's an eclectic group because it includes writers and authors, uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, but also controversial figures in in world history, including Marie Antoinette. And I began uh, studying the the lives of those women. My mother had uh, read a book written about the men and the author had had implied that the, the women also appeared to Wilfred Woodruff. So I took that and just started reading their books, their poetry, you know, the, the stories of the French Revolution. And, and the question uh, in my mind was, was why Wilfred Woodruff? Why, why was this group focused on him? My training as an attorney is what led me to the primary sources because I didn't want to know what someone else thought of his experience, but why he was the one in 1877 that the temple was focused on and the work was focused on. And I began to read his journals and, and search for his letters and read his discourses. And 23 years later, here I am. So, Well, thank you. And I, I am thankful for Alice Clarkson Turley because uh, she set you on this path. And I'm thankful for your training as a lawyer. It's a great benefit to me in my efforts to learn from the Wilfred Woodruff papers, all the things you've gathered in the very systematic way that you go about collecting them, preserving them, and and describing them. People will eventually become, through the Wilfred Woodruff papers project, uh, privy to the massive amounts of data and analysis that you have done on Wilford's papers, and uh, they'll be they'll be the beneficiaries, as I have been, of your great work. Let's let's just recap for listeners who may not know. Let's recap. Uh, Wilford would have. Let's start just by his lifespan. When was he born? When did he die? 
Yeah, he was born March 1st, 1807, and he died in September 1898. The fascinating story of Wilford Woodruff's connection to the church and his life began when he moved to New York. So, When was that, the 1830s? Yes, his, his older brother Ozum had gone to work on the Erie Canal mm-hmm. and invited his two younger brothers to join him in Richland County, New York. And they moved there to buy property and start their own mill, which is what they'd been trained by their father. And that put him within a few miles of John Taylor, Brigham Young, and Joseph Smith. And others may call it a coincidence, but uh, that was the first time in Wilford's own record that he said it was the hand of the Lord that changed his path in life. And he followed that inspiration and was introduced to the church within a few months. Heard the gospel from some of the many traveling missionaries. Uh, gained a conviction of it, right? Joined the church in 1834. Is that right? He was baptized December 31st, 1833, Wilford and his brother. Parley P. Pratt came to the home and was recruiting for Zion's camp and, and spoke to both Wilford and his brother, Asman. And Asman did not choose to go and ended up um, not joining the, the body of the saints for almost 50 years. Well, Wood, Wilford immediately settled his affairs and I mean I I compare it to the apostles um, Simon and Andrew where they just dropped their nets and and followed Christ and when Wilford got to Kirtland he consecrated everything to the Lord and um, that included a box of books a sword a, a gun the clothes on his back, and um, even his unsettled debts. From there he goes to Missouri with the camp of Israel, and from Missouri he does not return to Kirtland along with many of the others. Where does he go from Missouri? He, along with others, stayed in Missouri and worked, but he also felt like he should serve a mission. He went to the southern states and taught in Arkansas and Tennessee mainly, and went through Missouri. And the individuals that he met there on his mission ended up being pivotal for the rest of his life. So his first companion, Harry Brown, ended up as the father of one of Wilfred Woodruff's wives. Another um, family that he met um, also were the aunt and uncle of his future wife, Emma. So part of the mission experience was those who would be leading figures in the church later, but it was also part of his own development. And even in that mission experience, he had visions, had experiences that taught him the importance of the temple and became a pivotal part of his Kirtland experience as well as other temple experiences. Interestingly, he missed the Kirtland Temple dedication and the, the uh, visit of the Savior and the ministering angels in April of 1836 because of his mission south. But he returned and with Joseph Smith learned about and received ordinances at the temple in Kirtland in 1837. Becomes a missionary not too long after a 70 and a missionary uh, off the coast of Maine marries Phoebe Whitmore Carter, 
one of the smartest things he ever did, <laughs> and then becomes one of the twelve apostles. He learns by letter while he's on his mission by letter from the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Thomas Marsh, that he has been called to the apostleship. And he is ordained an apostle on the site of the Far West Temple in Missouri. And then, after witnessing the day of God's power, uh, the Lord healing many of his people, at least temporarily, in and around Nauvoo, he is one of the apostles who serves the mission to England that changes so much. Dramatic changes in the church as it's re-energized and reinvigorated by thousands and thousands of first British and later Scandinavian and other converts. And then finally to Utah. You are listening to the Wilfred Woodruff Papers podcast. I'm Steve Harper and Jennifer Mackley has been telling us Wilfred's story. She's about to tell how it relates to the Holy Temple. You're going to want to hear this. And if you want to check out the Wilfred Woodruff Papers Project or support the foundation behind it, check out wilfredwoodruffpapers.org. Now, back to Jennifer Mackley, telling us how Wilfred Woodruff received temple ordinances from Joseph Smith. What are the intersections of Wilfred and the temple? So the first 10 years of, of Wilfred's life in the church was, was spent on missions and just like in Kirtland, he missed the first solemn assembly in 1836. In Nauvoo, he was not present for the six weeks that Brigham Young was able to begin the administration of ordinances in the temple. So his experience with temple ordinances in Kirtland were the second solemn assembly in 1837, and he received his Washington anointings um, from Joseph Smith, along with other missionaries that were preparing to go out and preach the gospel. He received his endowments from Joseph Smith in Nauvoo before the temple was completed. And that was a theme that was part of his testimony for the rest of his life, uh, including his last testimony in 1897. Because for, for Wilford, it was the power of God through the restoration, and that meant Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was the connection to the priesthood and the ordinances, and particularly the temple, the endowments. And so Wilford and Phoebe participated in those ordinances as well as the sealing in 1843 and 1844. And they went to England together and returned in 1845. There is in, in Wilford's journal a beautiful entry where he describes um, an awful day that he and Phoebe had, freezing, freezing cold. They're trying to stay warm. They make a fire. Their house fills with smoke. They both get sick. Their daughter tips over in a chair and smashes her face. And after this long and, and awful day, they go to a meeting and uh, participate in in the high and holy ordinances of the temple and he makes an elaborate design in his journal that day uh do you have anything you want to say about that or or other that that's characteristic of wilfred's life and and love for the temple right it's a mundane life in a celestial world on one hand and an exalted 
existence, looking forward to all the blessings of, of the temple covenants on the other hand. You're right. That is a typical Wilford Woodruff um, entry or explanation. And that's why his record is so remarkable because there are many of us that can write, you know, at the end of our lives and say, you know, I, I had a good life. Um, I had some incredible experiences, um, but we're hitting the highlights. And Wilford's journey was one of the process, the the struggle, the faith that it took, and and the process of learning, going back to the Lord for more information, and being blessed with additional knowledge and instruction. And the day-to-day struggle with that is the value in his record. And it's it's a unique record because it's, it takes you step-by-step step through every stage of the restoration. And some of the most important messages that we have from that time in history are through Wilfred Woodruff's journal. Had he not recorded them as they happened, um, we wouldn't have Joseph Smith's words, but we also wouldn't have the developing understanding. And Wilfred's focus on eternal life, on the ordinances that connected families was from the very beginning, from the, his first introduction to the gospel. And as I studied his life, that's what I understood, that his focus on the temple meant others focused on him and his testimony of those experiences from the revelation, the restoration of the priesthood, um, the, the restoration of those ordinances, and, and why Joseph Smith is pivotal to all of those points in the process of restoration. That's well said, Jennifer. Thank you. I, I liked what you said a few minutes ago, too, about um, Wilford's emphasis on receiving the ordinances from Joseph Smith, the Lord's authorized servant. He knew that that was crucial, and he emphasized it very much. Let's tell the story about near the end of his life, when his son-in-law brings a phonograph machine into his office to show him the latest recording technology. What happened as a result of that? He recorded a brief testimony, and it's amazing to hear his voice uh, because it's the first record we have of any prophet's voice. He hit three things, and it was the same three things that he had emphasized throughout his testimony and conversion to the gospel, and it was the power of God. And the power of God being manifest through the priesthood, um, through the ordinances, um, particularly the endowments, and the fact that that connection to the power of God was through his prophet Joseph Smith. So yeah. it was a personal witness. He was an eyewitness to those things. And he said, I, I received those ordinances under the hand of Joseph Smith. I received my endowments under the hand and direction of Joseph Smith. And it was through the power of God. Wilford wanted to document that very much. And he documented it in writing many times, and finally he lived long enough to put, it, put his voice onto wax cylinders, and we can still hear his voice bear that, that witness. We've, we've kind of told now the beginning of his temple trajectory, and close to the end of it, um, 
He lived long enough to be the prophet who dedicated the uh, the Salt Lake Temple. He was there from the very beginning, in some ways, of the vision of the Salt Lake Temple. Let's pick up some parts of the middle of the story. Uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, the few first few days in the Salt Lake Valley and the vision for the Salt Lake Temple. So in 1847, when the pioneer camp arrived, uh, which was many of the apostles, and they took a walk. And as they were walking, Brigham Young said, this is the spot where we, we are going to build the temple. And, and I think one of the things that I learned in my study of his life was there were, there were ordinances that were suspended for a time or even discontinued. And when you study church history, um, it might look like, uh, you know, they had this step-by-step map that was drawn. But even even the building of the Salt Lake Temple, the visions that they had are what sustained them through 40 years of, of trials in the Utah War, in the dispersion of the saints throughout the territory, um, you know, just the struggle they had to just feed themselves. When Brigham Young says, this is the spot for the Salt Lake Temple, it's Wilfred Woodruff who marks the spot, and it's it's fitting, right? It's going to be Wilfred who many, many decades, well, several decades later, is the prophet who dedicates that temple. And as you've said, he's the one who uh, receives the revelations and implements uh, the, the ordinances as we most know them today. A major, major um, part of that is Wilfred's service in the St. George Temple. Will you tell us uh, about the key things that happen with Wilfred being appointed by Brigham Young to preside over the St. George Temple? It's more than just being the temple president there. He does major things that... um, that give us uh, development in temple work as we know it. Wilfred Woodruff and Brigham Young went to St. George in November of 1876 to make the final preparations for the temple opening and dedication. And there was a partial dedication in January and they began the work um, for a few months before the full dedication in April. And during that time, they recorded for the first time, the ceremonies, the endowment, the other ordinances that would be administered in the temple. The St. George Temple was significant because it was the first time that all the ordinances were available, not only for the living, but to be performed by proxy. Those things that Joseph Smith had taught in Nauvoo and understood had to wait um, until there were individuals who had received their own endowments, had received all the ordinances for themselves, and then could administer them to others. So part of that was recording those ordinances because that generation was, yeah, was getting older. You know, we're, Brigham Young would pass away later in 1877, for example. Yes. This is a, a huge point you're making. Let's dwell on it for, for just a minute here. So I think it may be little known to many of our listeners that Joseph Smith revealed all the temple ordinances, but they did not, the saints did not practice all the temple ordinances for many, many years. They did not, for example, perform sealings for the dead, and they did not 
uh, seal many families together genealogically until much later. And a major turning point in that is when Brigham Young appoints Wilfred Woodruff to preside over the St. George Temple and to record the ordinances for the first time and to begin to do sealings, proxy sealings for families uh, and um, a much ramped up emphasis on endowments for the dead as well. Joseph Smith gives Brigham Young his endowment ordinances on May 4th, 1842, and he tells Brigham something vital about it and his future responsibilities. Will you, will you tell us that story? The initial group that received the endowment from Joseph Smith, it was in the upper room of the red brick store in Nauvoo, and Joseph uh, must have had an understanding that he wouldn't live to see or participate in the temple when it was completed and just said, you know, we've, we've done the best that we can do, but it's up to you, Brigham, to adapt to this to the, the circumstances of the temple. And that's exactly what happened because Joseph Smith's death um, occurred when, when the walls of the temple were only a few feet high. It took um, a lot of work uh, for another year and a half to complete the temple enough to begin administering the ordinances there. And Brigham was, he, he directed the intense period of ordinance work in the Nauvoo Temple. Um, it was a six-week period, and they endowed over 5,000. Um, but the sealing work was, they only sealed 70 children to their parents. And the focus was not on the family connection through the generations in part because they didn't have generations of connections. They were individuals who had joined the church rather than families or multiple generations. So that work, Brigham's role in that was conveying the temple ordinances as well as the sealing power to a new generation and understanding that the Salt Lake Temple would take um, you know, decades longer to complete, they built the St. George Temple. And that's where the, the temple work really expanded. But again, Brigham's role was to communicate and put in writing the ability for others to continue that work. And the St. George Temple record was what was used as the basis for training workers and administering those ordinances in the Logan Temple and then the Mantine Temple and then the Salt Lake Temple. The Lord gives Joseph Smith the commission to endow and seal the Latter-day Saints. Joseph Smith does so, but hands off to Brigham Young the responsibility to organize and systematize the ordinances and get them in the right shape. Brigham Young does much of that, but at the in the last year of his life, he hands that same baton to Wilfred Woodruff, who then carries it through the dedication of the Salt Lake temple, receiving along the way more important revelations. And of course, that same process continues into our, our own time here. But will you continue, Jennifer, and tell us about a couple of more of those major developments that Wilford Woodruff um, received and implemented? Yes, the St. George Temple was pivotal, again, for, for three or four main reasons. One is that the record was kept um, from that point on. The other was that Wilfred Woodruff 
was alone. Uh, he didn't bring his family with him when he was in St. George for those months as the temple president. And he had spent the years between the dedication of the Nauvoo Temple in the 1840s and now the opening of the St. George Temple in the 1870s doing his research. And he had over 3,000 family names and he was praying to know how he could accomplish that work. First of all, as a man, he couldn't do the work for the women, but um, also just the overwhelming task of the baptisms, confirmations, ordinations, endowments, and sealings of all of those individuals. And he received the revelation that was truly a revelation that we could help each other in this work. And it was on his... 70th birthday, March 1st, 1877, that 154 women um, gathered in the St. George Temple and, and helped him with the, the temple ordinances for his female ancestors. And that was something that allowed those who didn't have family um, who had thought they would never be able to return to the temple because you go there first for yourself and the only way to return is either as a ordinance worker or um, as a proxy volunteer. So the stories of those women and their, the blessing to them of being able to help others with the work is also an incredible testimony. I love that aspect of temple work thank you jennifer for that let's let's fast forward now into the early 1890s and wilfred woodruff is now president of the church presiding over the completion of the salt lake temple and the saints have been assuming for about half a century some things that we no longer assume about ceilings and in a nutshell, it's the idea that if your ancestors didn't already accept the gospel, you wouldn't want to maybe risk uh, being sealed to them. You'd want to be sealed to somebody who you thought had a high likelihood of going on to exaltation. So many sealings have been done by adoption, as they called it. People would be adopted into uh, families in the church rather than sealed to their own ancestors. And Wilfred receives an enormously consequential revelation where the Lord changes that assumption. They had to adapt to the circumstances they were in. And, and 1844, like I said, they didn't have generations in the church. They also didn't have um, the possibility of having those enough people with the power to administer the ordinances and the place to do so. So as things changed over the generations, it was not only the first generation had received their endowments and ceilings, but the next generation had. And so they had individuals who were living on the earth who had been sealed and endowed and received the priesthood. The concern, as you said, was those who, for example, somebody joined the church in 1844 and their families disowned them. They not only didn't join the church, but they were hostile against it. And so the idea of being sealed to, to that person, even once 
the opportunity for proxy work began in St. George was still a concern. And Wilford Woodruff had the same concern. So to adopt, um, you know, his father to Joseph Smith was a concept based on the fact that if you're going to connect the priesthood line all the way back to Adam, to God, then there's a problem with the space where there was an apostasy and no priesthood on the earth. So how do you bridge that gap? And that was through Joseph Smith and the restoration of the priesthood from John the Baptist and Peter, James, and John. So it seemed a simple solution to seal or adopt into that priesthood. And it all centered on Joseph Smith to bridge that gap back to Peter, James, and John to Christ. So 1894 was a pivotal point because it was at that point that they had the generations within the church and the proxy ordinances for those who were on the other side of the veil. And the concern was then, what if my father didn't join the church when he was on the earth? Or what if my mother um, disowned me uh, because I did join the church? So Wilford Woodruff's counsel was, we are to perform the ordinances and trust we are not to judge. And, and those who had been adopted into another priesthood line, he said, we understand that, that the preaching of the gospel continues on the other side of the veil. And he says, I don't think there's going to be that many, if any, who will um, not recognize the truth and accept it. And so he said, all we can do is our part to offer that opportunity, and we need to offer it to everyone. And that's when he said, this is the way to fulfill the mission of Elijah and accomplish what God intended when he explained this process to Joseph Smith. And truly, it changed the focus of temple work because... Now it was connecting families, not just providing these ordinances and opportunities for individuals, but to truly seal families, multi-generational families. And it's a, it's a concept that we look back on and we think every, every talk we hear, every Sunday school lesson is focused on how can we prepare ourselves for the temple and those blessings because that will bring our families together and death can't separate us. But that wasn't the focus of the temple work until 1894. I'm thankful for that, Jennifer. That was excellent. And it's so important, and I think maybe perhaps not well known or understood how we get from the beginning to where we are today with temple work, an ongoing uh, process of revelation. We see it in our very own time. And we will continue to see it. That's how it's always been. We can expect that's how it will continue to be. I'm Steve Harper, and you are listening to the Wilford Woodruff Papers podcast. Jennifer Mackley is the co-founder of the Wilford Woodruff Papers Foundation and the CEO of the Wilford Woodruff Papers Project. And she's just about to tell us what that means, why it matters, 
and what you can do to ensure that Wilfrid's papers become as easily available online as the Joseph Smith papers now are. Can we transition now and have you tell us about the Wilfred Woodruff Papers Project? What kinds of papers exist? What do we mean when we say Wilfred Woodruff Papers? And give us just ballpark figures for how many, how many pages of journals? How many letters do you think are out there? He actually kept a summary each year of every letter sent and received, as well as every discourse, every speech, every mile he walked. And so following the breadcrumbs that he's left, it makes it easy to at least understand what's possible to find and to preserve. And he kept a daily record from his baptism. He said, this is an important time in the history of the world. And he encouraged others to record as well. But he wrote 6,891 pages in his journal. And, and that was uh, transcribed from daybook. So in addition to those official journal pages, he also had hundreds of pages uh, in daybooks. He wrote autobiographies for all of the apostles as well as himself and his wife, Phoebe. And he, he added up 13,308 letters that he sent to other people and 17,439 that he received. And he recorded that he gave 3,559 discourses. So the goal of the Wilfred Woodruff Papers Project is to find everyone that has survived. And we already have thousands, but there are more out there, <laughs> whether they're in private collections or historical societies. Our mission is to find them. For a nerdy historian like me, that's like, that's this exciting talk right there to hear that. And <laughs> I hope even people who aren't nerdy historians will have some sense of excitement about what you're talking about. You're, you're telling us that you and the people you're working with are going to make almost 7,000 pages of Wilford Woodruff's journals accessible at a click on a search engine and easy to read, easy to uh, 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 search. You can find your ancestors in Wilford Woodruff's journal. You can find the day he gave them a temple recommend or sealed them in the temple. You can uh, access all kinds of information that is otherwise unavailable because it's in an archive in Wilford's handwriting. And your work and the work of the Wilford Wood of Papers Foundation is to make all that massive amount of information available at a, a search and a couple of clicks. Yes, and it will take um, concerted effort. And um, I mean, you compare the Wilfred Woodruff papers to the Joseph Smith papers, and it's an exponential difference in the number of documents. But, you know, like I said, there, there's so much more that's accessible for Wilfred Woodruff, in part because his life spanned decades where there was better technology and record keeping. Jennifer, I worked uh, for 10 years on the Joseph Smith Papers Project, and we um, that project really, really got underway when Gail and Larry Miller came forward and began to make it financially feasible. 
It's a massive amount of work, and a whole army of people are working on it. It is state-of-the-art. It's highly regarded by by uh, the National Historical Records Preservation people, as well as uh, scholars in and out of the church. And I know that at the Wilford Woodruff Papers, you mean to, to do the same co- quality of work. And uh, the scale is much larger. Wilford Woodruff has so many more papers than Joseph Smith does, largely because Joseph didn't love to write. He kept about 1,588 pages of journals or so, whereas Wilford has almost 7,000 pages and letters, even bigger disparity than that. So my point is, who's going to pay for all this? And the answer to that is good people, all kinds of good people, are stepping forward to uh, donate a little or a lot to the Wilfred Woodruff Papers Project in the same way that Gail and Larry Miller have made the Joseph Smith Papers Project go. And uh, do you want to talk about that? Time costs money. So the more people that get involved and help um, financially and personally, the faster it will it will be done. We have a very different structure than the Joseph Smith Papers because it's a private foundation. Um, you know, people can donate and, you know, the charitable deduction kind of thing. But also because it's a private foundation, we don't have the resources of a major institution like BYU or, or the church history department. It means that people, individuals, um, the funding comes from those who are um, dedicated to this work and getting the truth out in context and sharing Wilford Woodruff's wisdom and testimony with those who are seeking truth and trying to understand um, the history, whether they're people within the church or or interested people outside the church. Thank you, Jennifer. If I, if I understand right, our project is, is more dependent than the Joseph Smith Papers, for example, on um, people being anxiously engaged in a good cause of their own free will and, and bringing it to pass. And this is one of those causes that people could uh, feel good about and get behind in one way or another if they feel so inclined to do so. And we invite anybody who may be inclined to to do so. Jennifer, thanks for your time and attention and your expertise, your lifetime of devoted work to the Wilford Woodruff Papers and to, to the point of the Wilford Woodruff Papers, right? They're not an end in themselves. They are a means to the end of understanding the work of the Lord in the latter days and especially of the of the temple and its exalting ordinances. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Jennifer and I enjoyed telling you about Wilfred Woodruff and the vital records that he kept. He did his part to document the sacred past. His efforts will have minimal impact, however, unless we have access to his records and make the effort to learn from them. If you want to help us transcribe and verify and publish President Woodruff's papers online and in print, or if you want to donate to this cause, email Jennifer or I. She's at jennifer.mackley at wilfordwoodroffpapers.org, and I'm at Steve Harper at wilfordwoodroffpapers.org. You can visit our site, wilfordwoodroffpapers.org. Our whole team is working hard to put many of President Woodruff's papers there on that site by March 1st, 2021, his 214th birthday. 
We invite you to visit the site often, tell everyone you know about it, and come join our team if you want to have a hand in the Wilfred Wood of Papers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>